Yellow. Mellow. Welcome to Jenny and Chels. I'm Jenny. And I'm Chels. And welcome to another episode. Today we have two good creepy stories from the No Sleep Reddit, like always. They always have the good stuff. So, yeah. I have a story about um a girl that had some experiences or experiment with psychedelic drugs and she might have encountered more than she hoped for and chelsea has another story for us what do you have chelsea i have that's so raven okay i was totally off key but if you ever yeah. watch yeah. don't quit your daytime <laughs> job um yeah i'm not going to pick up singing anytime soon but if if you ever watch that's a raven on disney channel that's what we're going for today all right well chelsea's gonna get us started so take it away you ready ready i'm ready ready i want to know what's so raven about the story okay and what's a raven or raving about the story Ooh, i wow. see what you did there wow let's go let's just go <laughs> okay so the story is called my boyfriend forgot to lock his personal drawer last night and i am absolutely livid as a child i thought my visions were normal that we all get them whenever someone was about to die but nobody said anything as common courtesy i mean imagine marching up to a person you've never met before and telling them tough luck on the fridge freezer that's gonna crush your skull later nasty way to go being pinned down under all that weight but oh well rest in peace that's why i didn't realize i was a freak until the night my parents died They were driving home from the beach and singing along with the radio when the vision showed me glass exploding inward. Another car slammed into walls like a bullet train spinning through a tunnel, then up became down and then up again as we plunged over an embankment, my parents' mangled bodies twisting in midair. The second my vision ended, I trashed around my seat. Stop, 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 we have to get out, I screamed. After she turned down the music, my mom unbuckled her belt reaching into the back and grabbed me by the shoulder. Sierra, honey, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? She and dad were about to get impaled by the fucking windshield. That's what's wrong. I don't want you to die, I whimpered, my heart practically beating out of my chest. She scrunched up her face. Who says I'm going to die? And that's when it hit me. She hadn't the faintest idea her ticket just got punched. Neither of my parents did. While I alternated between clawing at the door handle and slamming my fist against the side window, Mom begged me to settle down. With his free arm, Dad tried helping wrangle me into place, but he couldn't simultaneously do that and drive, so he eased the car to a stop. Five seconds later, headlights engulfed the cabin. I woke up in a hospital bed with my left leg in a metal cylinder. When a pale doctor pulled back the curtain and announced I'd become an orphan, I simply stared up at the bright halogen bulb numb to the world. The bad news didn't end there. It turned out the bastard responsible for the accident sped off before the authorities arrived. Still, the doctor continued, smiling thinly. With physical therapy, you'll be able to walk again. The collision left me with 16 pins in my femur, a college of nasty scars you can still see today, and a slightly off-balance joint weight walk. Throughout the agonizing six weeks I spent in recovery, 
Questions like, could you have saved mom and dad by reacting sooner? Slashed through my brain. Their mutilated corpse haunted me from the moment nurses arrived with breakfast until the drugs dragged me into a restless sleep. After rehab, state officials placed me with a kind foster family who made me see a shrink. One hell-bent on asking how the accident made me feel 50 times a session. I couldn't reveal the truth, that I blamed myself for it, and simply thinking about mom or dad set my insides squirming. Every memory of them had become entwined with the guilt, you see. At the end of one session, the therapist encouraged me to lead a life that would make them proud. This set me thinking, what if the visions had a purpose? What if this ability could do me some good? The people I cared about were beyond saving, obviously, but others still needed help. Isn't that how Batman got started? Finding somebody to rescue turned out to be way tougher than you'd think. For the first few weeks, I only encountered folks whose obituaries, obituaries would soon read died from natural causes. But then, after high school one afternoon, some older girls strolled past my locker, triggering an especially nasty vision. I saw the blonde girl at the front trapped inside a smoke-filled room, choking on thick black fumes. As she feebly mashed her fist against an unmovable wooden door, naked flames licked her flesh until every inch of exposed skin bubbled and boiled. Right as her eyeballs melted out of their sockets, I found myself back at the locker. I limped after the group fast as my leg would allow. On the march toward the front entrance, Blondie bragged about her family's plans to stay at the cabin in the woods that weekend. How did I convince her not to go? I waited until the group parted ways on the quad before I tapped the girl's shoulder. She faced me. Hey, so, um, I heard you're staying at a cabin this weekend. Yeah. I know a guy, well, I knew a guy who died in one of those. We both stayed quiet, the silence growing awkward. It caught fire. Okay. She murdered a, quiet, a quick, quiet freak as she turned away. Terrified I'd already blown my chance, I blocked her path. It, it, it's just, I've heard those things can be dangerous, you know, all that wood. Around us, conversations trailed off as students' heads snapped in all directions. Blondie circled me, her green eyes white with embarrassment, and broke into a jog. My leg muscles twinged and spasmed, matching her pace. Maybe don't go? I mean, why take the risk? Get away from me, loser, she, shout, she shouted as she tore past the case. At least just check the small detectors when you get there, I shouted from after her. That weekend, I passed the time by staring up at my bedroom ceiling for hours on end. On Monday, the principal called a special assembly, and my cheeks were drenched with tears before he even approached the podium. The blaze took the lives of both the blonde girl and her younger sister. The school memorial attracted a massive turnout, and being surrounded by that profound outpouring of grief felt like a knife twisting between my ribs, a constant reminder I disappointed my parents. Again. This made me even more determined to save the next life. Three weeks 
later at the grocery store, an opportunity came along in the form of a thin clerk about to tumble off his ladder. I bolted down the aisle, but before I'd even managed ten steps, the man's feet wobbled from side to side. In a desperate attempt at remaining upright, he windled his arms around, collapsing a nearby lemonade stand. In the end, gravity won out. The tiled floor cracked his skull like an egg, then blood and fizzy yellow liquid seeped out from beneath the corpse, mingling together. Meanwhile, I just stood there, deflated. Patterns soon emerged. The drowning girl got swept away before I could fish her out the river. The social worker about to get stabbed flipped me off because I begged him to rush home, yet couldn't explain why. And the paramedics failed, to, failed at resuscitating the elderly man suffering a heart attack on the park bench, even though thanks to me they arrived 10 seconds after he started clutching his own chest. No matter what I did, no matter how hard I tried, the visions always came to a pass. Always. When I barely winced at a cashier about to get shot in the face over the, mer the, mere, the meager change in his register, it became painfully obvious I'd lost all hope. Sorry mom, sorry dad, turns out my gift couldn't benefit others after all. Fast forward 15 years. By the time my 30s reared their ugly head, I'd launched a decent IT career and paid off a cozy apartment. Years of physical therapy had left my limp almost unnoticeable, although if I stood around too long, pins and needles still went racing along my thigh. Those guilt pangs over my parents' death never subsided though, and as a result, I avoided large crowds and gatherings on accounts of all soon to be corpses. Until a bizarre vision changed everything. It was the 20th anniversary of the accident, and I'd slipped into a sports bar to perform my yearly ritual of drowning gruesome images from the collision in the shot glass. But no sooner I had found a quiet seat in the corner when a suited man approached my table and said, Hey baby doll. His appearance triggered a vision, which surprised me. This guy clearly looked after himself and couldn't have been any older than 40. Typically, people fitting that description beat the dust in a strange and unusual way. Maybe he had an undiagnosed lung condition? Or a jaded ex hungry for revenge? My, didn't, my vision didn't reveal either of those things. Instead, it showed him on his knees, in a windowless room beside a leather sofa, blood gushing from his neck like water from a spout. With a liquid gurgle, he pawed at his own throat and then slumped face down onto a diamond pattern rug, feet twitching. And standing over him, slaughtering knife in hand, was me. Back in the bar, my hands clung onto the table. Who was this guy? Where did the encounter take place and why the hell would I kill somebody? A sensible voice in the back of my mind told me to walk away, to bolt straight out the door. If anybody else tried that baby doll line, they'd have received a real gesture in response. But I needed answers, so I forced a smile and looked up. Buy you a drink? The man asked, one eyebrow raised. Peter had a slender nose brown hair and dark eyes. A handsome guy, no doubt. He worked as a lawyer, youngest partner in his firm's history, and his favorite subject was 
himself. That suited me. I gave him a fake name, which he probably forgot 10 seconds later. You look familiar, he said, after his third whiskey. Have we met before? Don't think so. I must be thinking of someone else. While he joked with the regulars and announced another round of me to a chorus of cheers, I studied his every move, half expecting his taste in beer or how generously he tipped to reveal why he deserved a death sentence. Wanna come back to my place? He asked when the bartender called last round. I should have made some half-assed excuse and slipped away, but there had to be some vital information I missed. Maybe Peter moonlighted as a serial killer? If so, didn't have an obligation, an obligation to investigate? Now intoxicated, he drove us over to his place in a fancy blue Porsche. The plan was simple. Stick around long enough to discover whatever dark secret he harbored. Then leave. No matter what. If anything suspicious turned up, I'd notify the police. That way, there'd be zero risk of any trouble. After all, how hard could not slitting somebody's throat be? Peter led me along the front hall and down a narrow staircase. As the basement door swung open, a yelp slid up my throat. We'd enter the room from the vision. Maybe I'd come to meet my destiny. Placing a hand against my back, Peter steered me past the diamond pattern rug, toward a home bar cast in warm red light by a neon Budweiser sign. From beneath the counter, he grabbed a chopping board and a sharp kitchen knife, the same one future me butchered him with. My eyes stayed glued to the blade while he cut lime slices and poured out tequila shots. We had a toast before moving to the fancy leather sofa, where my companion pounded back beer after beer. I nursed mine staying sober and in control. He managed an entire hour of shameless boasting before his head slumped forward against his chest. The pieces had all fallen into place. The knife, the rug, the defenseless victim. Yet I saw zero reason to hurt Peter. It's a miracle my giant sigh of relief didn't startle him awake. Take that, dumb visions. You lost. It was time to leave. However, a quick look around couldn't have hurt anybody, could it? There was no hidden torture chamber behind the bookshelf, just guides on the art of seduction, and the freezer didn't harbor any severed heads, only frozen salmon and shrimp. In a cramped office on the first floor, I rummaged through desk drawers, and right when it felt like this had all been a gigantic waste of time, my eye happened across a pile of newspaper clippings. The first line headline read, Two dead in highway hit and run. Beside it was a familiar image, the wreckage my parents died in. My hand frantically tore through the pile. In total, Peter had collected 17 articles about the collision and subsequent investigation. Beneath them, there sat an envelope with a name scribbled across the front. My name. A sensible voice in some quiet recess of my brain begged me to walk away, to forget what I'd seen and go. I waved the thought aside, took a slow, steady breath, and tore open the wrapper. The letter began with, Dear Sierra, there is something I must confess. On the night of your parents' death, I was driving drunk along. Those words dragged me back to the accident. 
caused me to relieve the sensation of the seatbelt pitting me in place while mom and dad's bodies ricocheted off the dashboard and the roof. Peter killed my parents. I'd found his confession. The letter explained how he'd avoided prison. Since he stemmed from a wealthy family, his father had been mayor at the time or something like that. Some powerful friends torpedoed the investigation. He heard I'd survived and considered reaching out over the years. The poor guy even spent countless nights agonizing over what happened and felt filled to bursting point with to bursting point with regret. Clearly not quite full enough to mail the letter. He'd written it to clear his conscience, nothing more. In an almost trance-like state, I returned to the basement. Peter snored away on the sofa, only vaguely aware of his own actions. I circled the bar, grabbed the knife, and positioned myself behind my parents' murderer. His foul whiskey breath fogged up the blade. My hands started trembling. Did I really want to go through with this? Did he really deserve to die? Is that what my mom and dad would have wanted? I quietened the bickering voices, closed my eyes, and took a slow, steady breath. No, two wrongs would not make a right. Better to take the letter and report the son of a bitch. Would this accomplish much? Unlikely. It sure beat the alternative, though. I started toward the door. I'd taken less than five steps when Peter stirred. Hey, you're not leaving. Oh, what's that? By the time I spun around, he'd already found his feet. Those brown eyes whipped between me and the letter. Why have... Where did... Of all of the potential excuses that came to me... Of all the potential excuses that came to me, zero made sense. When it finally dawned on Peter where he recognized me from earlier, his face turned whiter than the paper confession. His, than the paper confession, his mouth going wide with shock. Most likely, he saw resemblance to an old family photo published after the accident. His hands shot up in a submissive gesture. Okay, calm down. Holding the knife out defensively, I snorted quick, Fuck you! The nerves in my leg went wild with terrible burning sensations. While I shuffled backwards towards the stair, Peter said, Listen, Ciara, there isn't a day that goes by. Don't. Don't you fucking dare. He swallowed a lump. I'll make this right, I promise. Why don't you put down the, the knife and we'll talk. The suggestion this could get talked out made me snort. I said, go fuck yourself. I'm taking the letter along with your little scrapbook upstairs. Was this your plan all along? He demanded with self-pitying, giving away to anger. Get me drunk, then snoop around. How long have you been planning your little heist? Still traveling in reverse, I cut the hair, forced him to take a half step back. The knife felt good in my hand, powerful. Don't be stupid, none of this would hold up in court. Give me the knife, then we can work things out like two. Completely terrified and barely able to form a cohesive thought, I almost obliged, until a horrible image of the bastard picking his bruised, swollen head up of a steering wheel slid into my brain. I picture him slowly uncover my parents' insides spread out across 20 meters of asphalt before racing home to call his dad, who called the chief of police. Rational adult. Uh, I give you money or jewelry. A new car? Whatever you want. Just with renewed confidence, I said, the only thing I want, Peter, is to see you in an orange fucking jumpsuit. 
my heel hit the bottom step. In the brief moment, my eyes flicked backwards. The bastard lunged. I'll fucking kill you, he hissed through the clench, to his clenched teeth. His hands clamped around my wrist, tight enough the fingertips plunged into the skin. We wrestled around the room, collapsing shelves and slamming against the bar once, twice. My parents' smiling faces flashed before my eyes, accompanied by thoughts about how this might be the final time I'd ever disappoint them. After he murdered me, Peter would no doubt call his father, would hire two goons to dump the body. Both of us flew sideways in a collision course with the sofa. For a moment, the words flushed upside down. We hit the floor, hard, the knife landing midway between us on the rug. We fumbled for it, knees shaking from the panic and adrenaline, him struggling to regain equilibrium. In one smooth movement, I snatched the blade beyond the bastard's reach, readjusted my grip and then plunged the pointy end into his throat. As my hand yanked it loose, the thin blood trickled morph into a furious spray. Some even got inside my mouth, disgustingly warm. Peter tried to speak, although no words came out. Only a pathetic, wet gurgle. He flopped forward, tongue draped over his chin. And just like that, I found myself standing over a corpse. In, retro in retrospect, it probably shouldn't have come as such a surprise. Repulsed by my red palms, I retreated toward the bar and slid to the floor, breathless. I began convulsing, rocked myself back and forth, bile sliding up my throat. I felt ill and not from the tequila. By the time I had regained composure, a clock above the bar said 6 a.m. Somebody could have walked in any moment. There'd be time for remorse later. First, I needed to cover my tracks. Under my feet, the rug having absorbed most of the blood squelched as I raced around, wiping down every surface, gathering together all articles about the accident, I departed on foot and ditched the knife in a dumpster several miles away from the crime scene. Then I rushed home to read the confessions once more before burning them, along with Peter's treasure trove of misery. The next few days passed in a whirlwind of alcohol and tears. As politician's son, my victim made the front page. Authorities appealed for anybody with information to come forward. Funny how mom and dad never wanted such special consideration. After two weeks of rage, regret and hysteria, I'd almost reached the point of confession. Until something unexpected happened, that is. Reports emerged of multiple drunk driving incidents involving Peter, where the injured parties got paid off or threatened into silence, along with more assault allegations than reporters could keep up with. Turns out, Daddy had been buying that slime bottle of trouble for two whole decades. Gradually, the guilt haze looming over me since the night my parents died evaporated. The visions no longer felt like a burden. They were a blessing. One that dispensed justice. After the investigation won down and people lost interest in the story, I treated myself with a celebratory trip to the beach. All those happy families reminded me of my parents' final day, when dad and I spent hours building a huge sand castle with its own drawbridge, mom sunbathing nearby. While I stood ankle deep in the water, lost in thought, a mother shuffled past carrying her infant daughter. A disheveled man trailing after them, far enough away so as not to appear suspicious. There came another vision. In it, the mother and child sat back to back, tied up together in a bug-infested apartment, their jaws encased with duct tape. 
the grinning man hunched over them, his right hand caressing the terrified girl's cheek. A baseball bat connected suddenly with the back of his skull, which, which made him faceplant onto the wooden floor with a resounding thud. I'll give you three guesses who took that swing. Back on the beach, I watched all three disappear along the coastal path, conflicted, going after them men playing right into the vision's hand, not to mention cutting my celebration short. But then again, could I really pass up another opportunity to make my parents proud? And that is the end of the story. Whoa. Okay, I I was not expecting that route. I thought maybe like she would definitely find ways to like save people's lives. But I didn't expect mm-hmm. this to go into the Vandera or like, you know, vigilante route. Or, you know, like superhero, like she said, she compared herself to Batman. But I did not expect that at all. I didn't either. But for some reason, the second she said that she saw herself over somebody and then she asked herself the question, why would I kill someone? I'm like, "Mm, I know I would if I had been in that situation and it turned out somehow that the person who killed my parents, I... I could see myself lose to anger and just snap the same way she did. And and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the person is now <laughs> trying to kill her. That's the other thing. Right. So it's, yes. it really was self-defense. But at the it same was. time. So what, what I was thinking when you were reading the story is like when the parents died. So in a way, because she saw the vision in a way it's kind of like inevitable because because you know okay because because of her tantrum that she threw in the car you know the parents were losing you know control of the car and then the dad had to park and they were busy trying to calm her down and didn't see the Mm -hmm. other car at all like didn't even have a chance to even like avoid the whole situation and then they died Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's like, no matter what she does, the vision will happen. Yeah, because they were, they were stopped. They were, she said that they were, the the dad stopped the car Mm because they were trying to calm her down. But you're right. What if she hadn't threw a a tantrum and they just kept driving? He would have been paying attention and maybe avoided that drunk driver, you know, but yeah it seems like whatever it doesn't matter what she does the visions will come into play and somehow when she killed that guy it unlocked a new a new possibility of the visions and now she could go after the pe like she started killing those people who were committing crimes pretty much like because that guy was i feel like it's just the the satisfaction she got afterwards then made her feel like she can keep doing this and she's actually helping by killing all the bad guys because she already had the vision of her killing the guy before even that so it was already unlocked before she killed him oh that's true she started already seeing herself doing the stuff so in a way it's like she's following the vision so what but what if she doesn't that's the part that i would love to see like if they could explore that like if she doesn't Mm -hmm. just follow the visions and just ignore them do they still happen 
it looks like they did happen because when she between after the high school her dagger in her high school passed away from the fire um she gave up trying to prevent the visions mm -hmm. and the people would just still die and without her involvement so mm. that that is that is a good question what but if I she am... had a vision about her yeah um, that's what i'm more interested in like the vision mm -hmm. that involve her doing something or like killing somebody like if she actually ignores it like will that come true like would the people just still just die will somebody else come and save them in the same way that she would have Mm -hmm. Or like, would it just start like a whole new dimension, you know, when they talk about like choices and what you do creates a whole different parlor. But, you know, that's just my thoughts. But other than that, it was it was very intriguing and sto like, you know, interesting for a story. I really yeah, liked it. I liked it quite a bit, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, what do you have for us? All right. Well, today I have a story about somebody that actually you wanted to explore other dimensions and ended up meeting up with something she did not expect, you know. So the title is How Many People Are in the Room? And it's from the No Sleep Reddit subreddit as well. So that's how it goes. How many people are in the room? That was the first thing Stella asked me as she settled in at the table. I looked around the diner. It was two in the morning. The place was mostly empty. What do you mean? How many people are in the room right now? Beside us? She asked. Maybe five, six? I replied. Stella's lips trembled. How many people are in the room? Exactly. She was terrified. I counted. The waiter. The old man staring into the bowl of soup by the door. The two young women coming down from a night of hoarding over pancakes. The guy in a ball cap trying to cut through his overcooked steak and the middle-aged woman in a pea green overcoat. Six, I said. Six people. Stella instantly relaxed. Thank you. Stella and I hadn't seen each other in five months. I was in school out of state and was home for the summer. Stella had gone into a good university, but her sister, Anne, had died in a car wreck two weeks before she went off to school. The death hit her hard, real hard. I wasn't sure why she called me. I doubted it was to catch up, and it certainly wasn't to party. Stella knew I abstained from everything. For me, that decision was the end result of being raised by verbally abusive alcoholics and knowing the genetic odds. Stella looked rough, not strung out but existentially exhausted. There were scars on her hands bruises modeling her tattooed forearms and some unusual scarification marks on her neck two of them they looked like clumsy z's but reverse as if it was done in a mirror stella's friend corey had dropped her off at the diner about 30 minutes before i'd gotten there i didn't know him well but what i did know i didn't like so how are you holding up i asked stella didn't answer the waiter appeared and Stella looked him over cautiously before she ordered a black coffee and a slice of blueberry pie. I got a hot tea and a slice of a side of fries, though I wasn't exactly hungry. We sat in uncomfortable silence for a few minutes before Stella, standing down at her hands, asked, What's the worst thing you've ever did? 
I shrugged, said, lie to people? Lie to get out of things, mostly to my friends in high school, but I've changed. I don't do that anymore. Oh, I also shoplifted once. A pair of socks. Stella laughed. Then, that's when the waiter reappeared with our drinks and food. Stella jumped, her eyes wide, face flushed. The other people in the diner turned and looked, but did nothing. You alright? The waiter asked, weirded out. Taking a deep breath, Stella slowly sat back down. Yeah, sorry, she said. I just, just been a long night. The waiter shook his head as he put down the stuff. When he left, Stella sipped her coffee and then she looked over the mug at me, her eyes staring. I did the worst thing you can do. I tried to kill someone. I wasn't sure I heard her correctly. What? Stella nodded, eyes locked on mine. A jogger? Corey and me hit him with the car. Oh my god, when did this... On my way here, the blood drained from my face. We should call the cops. He could still be there hurt and... Don't bother, she interrupted me. We went back and checked on him. There was no jogger. What does... What's that fucking mean? I was starting to lose it. Please, don't start playing games with me, I said. I don't want to hear this sort of bullshit. Isn't bullshit, Stella replied. Ask Corey. I didn't want to ask Corey. Stella said, I didn't actually see the jogger. Corey did. That's how I knew. So I asked him exactly where the man was. And I grabbed the wheel and Corey screamed at me as I made the car slam into the guy. Sent him flying. Like it mattered. Corey hit the brakes hard. He was losing it. Talking about going to prison and his life being over. But I told him not to worry. That pissed him off something bad. When he got out the car to go help the jogger, he just froze up because no one was there. Road was empty. Me? I expected that. She took another sip of her coffee and poked at the slice of pie with her pork, stabbing the crust and, and examining the blue-tinged stains in the dull fluorescent light. See, it can look like a person, could be any age, dressed any sort of way, it talks like a person, eats, drinks, does all the regular sort of things people do. Doesn't exactly sound threatening, I know, but wait for the twist. I can't see it. This thing pretending to be a person is invisible to me. But you? You and everyone else? You can see it. I don't know what you're talking about. And I didn't. Stella finally looked up at me. Two weeks ago, we were tripping. Me and Corey and this woman named Genevieve, she was the guide. This was at Corey's house on the deck. We dropped N-bomb. That synthetic MDMA stuff. We'd been using hallucinogens and trying to explore an inner mental space. Tripping together, sharing the same imagery. It's crazy how if you're in sync, like emotionally and mentally, you can basically travel together. I know how it sounds, but I do. But it was really working for us. We were... I guess you'd describe it something like astral traveling. We'd build this architecture, this city in our minds and then explore it. 
Mostly it was made of shifting beautiful buildings, structures that rose over us like mountain ranges. And uh, in the mental city, that's where we came across it. The diner door chimed and two young women and the two young women having pancakes left. Stella watched them go, then turned back to me. I didn't need an explanation. There are four people in here now, I said. She nodded, sipped more coffee, and then continued. Well, this night, we traveled deeper into the city than we had been before. We ended up in the tower, had a spiral staircase. We all went up to the floor and found a locked door. You're all seeing the same thing? I interrupted, not buying the experience. Yes. Stella's demeanor had intensified. The twitchiness melted away. We all saw it. Okay. So, we get to this door. It's a metal door. Dented, but from the inside. Bulging out like someone was kicking the door, trying to smash it down. Genevieve got scared. Told us not to open that door, to stay far away from it. She said a Voyager was on the other side. Voyager? That's what Genevieve called it. Being a guy, she knew the sort of construction we were exploring. She'd seen doors like this, like this one, and she's been warned about voyagers. The way she told it, they were like us, explorers in inner space, but not from our reality, from another one, a bad one. But long story short, I opened the door. Why would you do that? Stella stared, stared her coffee lost in thoughts for a second. As she did, one of the cooks quietly came out from the kitchen and sat at the counter. He flicked through a newspaper someone had left and glanced over at me. He nodded, gave a little smile. I wonder if he, if he had made my fries I wasn't eating. After Corey and Genevieve drifted away, Stella continued, still staring at her drink. I heard a voice on the other side of the door. My sister's voice. She was begging, pleading with me to let her out. I swore it was her. So I opened the metal door. Feeling the stare from the cook, I ate a few of the fries. They were cold, soggy. What happened? I asked Stella. When I opened it, something suddenly brushed past me. Something clammy, cold. It touched me very briefly. There was pain. Stella unconsciously motioned to the Z-scars on her neck, then continued. Anyway, there wasn't a room on the other side of the door, just a void, a deep emptiness. When the trip was over, I immediately felt a change. I felt like I was being watched. The whole rest of that night, the next day, the next week, something was following me, a shadow, a presence, and I knew... I just deep in my gut knew that if it caught up with me, if it touched me again, I would die. She kept stabbing at, at her slice of pie, breaking the crust, letting the concealed blueberry slowly tumble out in the little landslide of jelly. You told me that you can't see this thing, Stella. The door to the diner opened and two men in work overall walked in, each holding a hard hat. They closed dusty. Stella suddenly straightened in her chair. Two men just walked into the diner, right? I nodded. Yeah, just those two guys. 
Just those two guys. Stella said all. Why me? I asked. Why did you want to meet? To tell me this? Stella smiled. First time she's done that all night. Because I knew you believed me. I swallowed hard, my throat suddenly impossibly dry. You've been a good friend. Stella blinked away, willing emotion. In high school, when things got bad with with boyfriends or assholes, you were the one I could confide in. The one that trusted me, the one that no matter what I did, no matter how stupid it was, you were there for me. A shoulder to cry on, a hand to hold. And she reached across the table and took my hand, squeezed it, tight. Truth was, I had had a crush on Stella most of high school. She was a friend for sure, and for a while a good friend. I liked being that rock for her, but I'd always hoped for more. Like most friendships, it began with one-sided attraction, mine. And even though I hadn't seen her in half a year, those feelings remained. Dormant but there, waiting to be awakened. As Stella held my hand and smiled, I noticed I felt her fingernails tracing something on the inside of my palm. At first sight, just a little pressure, only it got sharper until, ouch, shit! I pulled my hand away to find Stella had cut me. She sliced a shape with her sharp pinky nail into my skin. It was the backward letter Z. Like the one on her neck, a, a ribbon of blood began to well up from the center of the small cut. What the hell, Stella? She just shook her head and stood up, backing away from the table, repeating over and over. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I had to, okay? I had to. Had to what? Hurt me? I was furious, confused. Everyone in the diner turned to watch us. Only the cook got up from his place at the counter and walked over, eager to lend a hand. I waved him away. It's okay. I, I got it under control. That was when Stella broke. Her voice best barely a whisper. What? I told him I got it. She went pale. Who? Who did you tell? The cook, I yelled. He's just trying to help you. There is no cook. No one's there. Stella began shrieking, scrambling backward. She slammed into nearby table. Chairs fell over. Silverware scattered. No, no. She yelled, no one's there. The cook kneeled down beside Stella. And for a split second, bewildered as I was, I honestly thought he was going to help her up. He didn't. Instead, he leaned in close to her. She was crying and shaking and clearly couldn't see him. The cook turned to me, nodded with a slick grind, and then opened his mouth wide to reveal jumbled, bloody gums filled with jagged teeth. He tore her throat out in a single bite. And as Stella bloods pumped out across the linoleum flooring, the cook vanished. Not a slow fade, not dissolving into mist, just there one second and gone the next. Someone screamed. I think it was the woman in the peak green overcoat. After all, when the cops came, a story emerged. All the people at the diner that night, they said Stella cut her own throat with a knife. Where she got the knife from and where it went, they didn't know. They also said that the cook had tried to help her, 
that he attempted to close the wound and save her life, the cops couldn't find him after the EMT got there. When I went back to the diner the next day to ask about what happened, the waiter claimed they didn't even have a cook who resembled the man I described. The man I saw. It was as if after Stella's death, all the details of her demise began to unravel. Like the universe was erasing her from existence entirely. And now, the Voyager, whatever it is, has come for me. It's been five days since Stella had died in that diner. Five days that I've been haunted and hunted. I tracked down Corey and he led me to Genevieve. She told me what fate awaited me. According to her, Voyagers used the symbol, the backward Z's that were on Stella's neck, the one she scratched into my flesh to track their victims down. Stella, I guess, she thought she could trick the Voyager into taking me instead of her. It didn't work. And now she's doomed me. It's just a matter of time before there's an extra person, a person I can't see, sitting across from me on a bus or walking behind me on the street. Right now, I'm in a bedroom at my parents' house. I haven't left in 48 hours and they're getting worried about me. They heard I lost a friend, though they can't seem to recall anyone named Stella going to high school with me. So they're being compassionate and letting me stay cooked up. But they've told me I had visitors, folks stopping by unannounced, folks who, when I craned my neck out of the window to catch a glimpse of on the porch, aren't there at all. Just my parents talking gesturing into empty space. I'm going to have to leave this room eventually. That or my parents will get worried enough that they will have me helped out, likely to the hospital. And when I get there, I'll be asking the same question Stella did. How many people are in the room right now? How many exactly? And that's the end of the story. Um, okay. This story is very interesting and creepy because mm. i don't understand i thought that when she started apologizing to him saying i'm so sorry i like i i i knew you would listen to me and mm -hmm. stuff i thought maybe she screwed him over and she passed on the curse to him or something but then she still got chopped that's so what she thought. that didn't save her she life. didn't know it would work but she just thought that maybe if she scarred somebody else with the backward Z, she could just like transfer uh -huh. the curse or whatever was going on. So then the Voyager will take him instead of her. But it just didn't mark. Also, it just ended up marking him too to be tracked by the Voyager. Mm -hmm. Speaking of getting marked, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but when she heard her sister's voice on the other side of that door, I was I was screaming to myself, don't, don't open, open that door. door, don't open. Why but would you open, open that door? door? You know your sister is who dead. Who opens the door of a different dimension when everybody told you not to open it and bailed out? Genevieve knew Seriously. what she was doing, okay? Genevieve is the, is the guru. She's the guide. She the told you. The teacher. Eh? Exactly. She guided you there and she told you to get the F out. You get the F out. Like, Precisely. Like she she obviously listen. doesn't listen to the podcast because if she listened to the podcast, she would obviously know. Obviously not. When you hear voices that sound like people you know behind doors that you're not supposed to open, 
is most likely Thank you. are not the person you want to see on that. It's a scam. Exactly, it's a scam. I can't believe she actually went through. But in a way, too, like I do understand her because she's grieving, and he was uh, like, you know, Opie was saying that the loss like hit her really hard. So Mm -hmm. possibly maybe she's thinking in her head that since everything is in that inner mental space, then perhaps Mm -hmm. her sister exists in that inner mental space too. I could understand that personally. I believe that once somebody crosses over to whatever is beyond death, I can we as humans cannot access mm-hmm. that. So hearing that voice will personally piss me off because I'm like, whatever this is, you're not my sister, and you're trying to use that to get me and fuck yeah. you. Like that would actually get me more That's angry. What, you know, than... being out and looking into it. You know, it's like when you're watching a movie and you're like. Right get out of there <laughs> like why why are you why are you still walking why are you not running eh? why are you not running instead of why, why are you, you running? no is why like, are you, not you running? should run faster run faster exactly like fly at this point you know seriously but i thought Just it was i thought it was really out of there. interesting because i if the thing didn't mark him like i also wonder why mm-hmm. It will still follow him. Does it just take all oh, whatever you do a backwards Z? There's no specific backwards Z. Like it's not that the thing has to do it for you to you know to be followed by it. But overall, I think the I mean, story was pretty pretty solid. You wanted a tattoo, right? Why don't you try that backwards? Um, since when I wanted a tattoo, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Since, since I just decided oh, okay. that you wanted a tattoo. Yeah. So if I remember correctly, I know you wanted a tattoo. And I told you to not get some corny as shit as like the the, the, the zodiac sign or whatnot. So backwards You know, since know you love you love sleeping and catching Z's too, you know, you could just go with that. You know what I mean? Like As if you don't. You're yeah, funny. I don't like wow. tattoos, you, are you know. So the most I can do is write it with a eraser or like a okay. marker and just I... wash it off. Same, because the kind of tattoo I would want doesn't even exist anyway. Oh. I want gold ink. What? Like forever gold ink. Oh yeah. I know, yeah, I know. I know somebody that knows somebody oh, really? that actually does that. Of course. If you actually interested. send me the link. Oh, don't worry. I'll send Any, you the addy. Anywho's. I uh I enjoyed that story. That yeah, was really good. I think I think this time we have some closure in both stories. Oh my god. Finally, those are some stories that leave open endedness. It's open ended, but still we have explanations. We know what's going on and you can build your own theories and stuff like that without it just being empty. Exactly. I mean, I wonder who picked yeah. those previous stories cuz could not have been me. I have no idea. Could not have could been us. me too. Mm-mm. Like, no. I don't know what you're talking about. Me neither. But anyway, <laughs> we, have to, we have to feature different things. So, I guess that was that. It was. <laughs> Alright, well, thank you guys for tuning in for this episode. Let us know what you think down in YouTube. Like the comments on YouTube if you're listening to us on YouTube. And we also have like the little questions on Spotify as well. And leave us a review. Tell us how we're doing. And thank you for tuning. See you on next episode. Bye. Doodaloo. Doodaloo.